leadership is a practice. It's it's not a it's not an individual, and uh, it's not something people are born with. And it's you know it it's a practice with others. That's what leadership is. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Matt Linegar is the Chief Executive of the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation and in this episode we're talking about leadership and two very special drought resilience leadership programs that the ARLF is currently delivering to support farmers and rural communities, key for people, healthy communities and for our food systems. Welcome, Matt, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Anthea. It's a real pleasure. Matt, perhaps it's a bit strange to be talking about drought resilience while so many communities are experiencing the current trauma of extreme and back-to-back floods right now. But I guess the challenges of more extreme weather events occurring ever more frequently, more intensely back-to-back is a big part of why leadership development for resilience is just so key right now in our changing climate. Would you like to comment perhaps with a bit of a helicopter lens on that and on whether the sorts of leadership skills and abilities required for drought pretty much match though with those perhaps that might be required for other extreme events and resilience more generally? Yeah, thanks, Anthea. And I, I think uh, the point you were making there is pretty right, and, and that is that uh, it doesn't sort of matter, I don't believe, what the drivers are for the change that's happening in communities and the impact that that's having. So whether that's drought uh, or flood or COVID-19 or, or anything else, you know, uh, the sort of leadership that's required um, in those situations has a lot of similarities. So um, I don't think it, it matters that much. The other point you were raising about, you know, it's, it's, Seems crazy to be talking about drought now, where we're in, we're in flood in many places. I keep saying to to people and, and within our programs, and particularly in our the work that's happening in the Drought Resilience Leaders Program, is that you know perhaps in many ways this is the best time to be doing the work uh, to both develop leadership with, within regions and communities, uh, and and not having uh, you know a bunch of people. Bring, you're bringing together uh, who are in distress and in crisis and all the things that happen when you're in drought, it makes it really hard to be thinking uh, longer term beyond there. And so in many ways, I think it's, it's a good time. Uh, and so to be able to do this right now as we are and over the next uh, year or so, hopefully we don't, we don't see the, the face of drought too often in that period. So I think in many ways, it's a good time to be able to have the space just to think about that and to be able to collaborate and come together as a community and as a region as to how we start to tackle uh, these sorts of, um, you know, changes to uh, to our communities that are buffering our regions. Now's probably the time. Yeah, there's a window or an envelope when people aren't as stressed as they inevitably are during times of extreme drought. So absolutely, that's a, that's, that's a really good point, isn't it? 
Matt, you're the first leadership program alumnus of the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation to lead the foundation that does such amazing work with individuals and communities, all with the broad aims of capacity building in and for rural, regional and remote Australia. And you personally have over 25 years of leadership in agriculture, water, natural resource management, trade and marketing in the rural sector. I understand that before joining the foundation, you were CEO of the National Farmers Federation and prior to that held senior roles with Murrumbidgee Irrigation Limited, Rice Growers Association and the Australian Meat and Livestock Corporation and a whole lot more. So you've obviously got this incredible depth and breadth of knowledge about our rural industries and communities and their ability to cope, adapt, pull together and innovate. Before we dig into talk about the drought leaders and mentoring programs, can I ask you, as someone who's been involved in leadership and leadership development roles over many years, what do you see from your current work and the people you currently work with as the most powerful motivators of what drives people to want to develop their leadership skills? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that much of that starts with, uh, starts with self, starts with the individual. So, you know, you see people stepping into um, to different roles and, and leadership roles and they start to think about, well, you know, everyone has, <laughs> goes through, or most people, I should say, goes through this period of what, what we probably refer, I refer to as the imposter syndrome. In other words, you know, a step onto this board, now how the hell did I get here? <laughs> you know, and look around me, am I, am I up to this? Can I do what needs to be done here? And so it sort of starts there, I think. So what, what are the, people start thinking about, what are the, what's the capacity, what are the skills? And capabilities that, that I need to be able to foot it here, uh, to be able to, 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 to make sense and have my say. So probably, it probably starts, the motivators start it from self. So what is it that I need uh, so that I don't feel like that anymore? I don't feel like an imposter, like I'm contributing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and I think what usually happens is it matures from there. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is, People soon work out. Okay, it's not all about me. In fact, so so, um, you know, I, really, my role here is as much about how I can support other people to act, uh, and how I can cooperate and at times collaborate uh, with others to make things happen. So it's not all about me, and therefore, it's not all about my skills and and capability. It's actually about the extent to which I can build relationships work with other people, support them to act and really start to think and act beyond myself. So I think yeah. the motivations to start with often start individually focused and as, pe as their people and their leadership matures, it moves to more a sense of what I can do for others and to support others. Yeah, around impact and community and networks and all those yes. sorts of things. And yeah, not what's just, the impact? Yeah, and not just status, like an old-fashioned view of leadership is sort of almost about status and role, isn't it? Well, you know, we talk about this a lot and, <laughs> and you know, there is, we, we need positional leadership, so don't get me wrong, we absolutely need it, and we need to understand that it is only one form of leadership and anyone who's anyone would know, whether in their community or their organisation or their industry, there's a whole bunch of people who are having significant influence uh, over where things are going and yet that's not tied to their position or their authority. So look, I'd always, I'd always say too, if anyone starts using their authority 
uh, to make progress or to clobber other people into, into action, uh, you know something's going wrong. <laughs> okay. So, so what characteristics or attributes do you think are the most important to, ena- to enabling or empowering people to really become the best leaders they can become? I- I'm aware that your website has, you know, six really clear, uh, incisive, what you call key leadership practices. Would you, yeah. would you like to sort of elaborate on that or perhaps touch on yeah, some look, of those? Sure, and, and and I'll probably try and pair them back a little bit because <laughs> yeah. it took take a while to get through. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think the the first thing is 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 around awareness, and it is one of the things on the website we talk about as a key practice. And the reason we we focus on that, and indeed the leadership programs within the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation are so heavily focused there, uh, and spend a lot of time in creating challenge in many different ways is to maximise the opportunity for people to actually understand themselves and their own behaviours at great depth. Look, I can speak from experience. I went and did the Australian Rural Leadership Program 21 years ago, and I was a, whatever I was, a 30-odd-year-old, and I thought I knew myself pretty well. You know, and I can tell you, within, within three and a half days, I quickly worked out that I, in fact, I didn't. And why is, this, why, why is that even important? Can't we just be skilled people who just get on with the job? You know, in leadership, that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. So having that deep awareness of self, what are, what are my biases I'm bringing to the table? You know, am I aware of the values uh, that drive me? All of those sorts of things. How do I respond? We're talking about drought and natural disasters. How do I respond under pressure and in crisis? Yeah. And eventually what happens is um, as your leadership matures, you can start to choose to change your behaviour. This is a difficult thing to do. We're creatures of habit and we will go back um, to first principles and we will go back, you know, we talk about uh, the amygdala response, you know, the reptilian part of your brain, which goes to uh, flight or fright and all that sort of stuff. So awareness is super important in terms of, okay, I'm now in more control of my own behaviours, the impact I'm having on other people and therefore the situation, the industry I'm in, the community I'm in, all that sort of, all that sort of thing. And then... Oh moving outwards from there to how you start to understand other people, um, the very basis of which you build relationships, what respectful influence starts to look like, and it flows from there. So I think, I think awareness is really important. The ability to, to be able to adapt given a, change, given a changing context, and I don't have to talk to people about how rapidly our global and local contexts have changed over the last couple of years. So being able to adapt to a changing context is very important as well. And the third area I'd probably talk about is, is what, what we call affiliation. Really, what does that, that mean? That really means how can I connect with, support others in, ever in different sized circles to create action? So one of the hardest things we, we, that everyone finds is if you're in an organisation or another structure where you've got clear lines of authority and you want to get stuff done, well, potentially you can. I guess you need to understand uh, what, what the side effects or the collateral damage of, of using that, you know, that authority attack looks like. Mm. But in, in many other circumstances, that's not available to us. And so people just say, listen, if we, could, if we could get past this point where we all have to agree on something, we could just get on with the job. You know, that is what leadership is about. Mm. How, you know, how do you connect with, how do you understand, how do you find that, that common purpose, common ground 
And how do you spend enough time in that space to actually make progress? So I think affiliation is really important as well. Yeah, that's so interesting in terms of identifying points of common or collective impact, but not obliterating difference, being able to hear other voices and respect the fundamentally different positions other people may be coming from and, and that that may bring great value to your worldview that you had never seen before. Yes, and I know people talk a lot about, oh, look, we're going to get together and collaborate. Well, <laughs> you know, I've seen many examples of that, which, is, which isn't even close to collaboration. And that's okay. If you only need to cooperate to get somewhere, no problems. But oftentimes we need to collaborate. And, and what that means as a, as a first principle uh, is that you entering into a collaboration, you've got to be prepared going in there from the start to give something, not just to gain something. Yeah. You're not going in with that mindset. You're not really going in with a collaborative mindset. You're going in to leverage the most you can out of that situation, and that is not collaboration. Hmm. Thank, thank you for that, Matt. So awareness, affiliation, action, obviously another one, authenticity, yes. adaptation, and advocacy. Uh, that takes us around the six uh, yes. leadership practices, and it's it's a really, really valuable mind map, life work mind map. I love it. <laughs> Um, Matt, the ARLF was established in the early 1990s, currently runs six leadership programs, including the Drought Leaders Program that has a few other ones within it, and has this amazing network of some 1,700 plus alumni from across Australia who must have incredible collective knowledge, experience and expertise. Do, do your programs draw from and are they guided by the alumni? Yes, they do. And uh you know, we have, well, firstly, we have a number of, of alumni uh, who remain very close to and engage with the work of the foundation and, and many of them are, you know, leading and facilitating our work and mm. programs. So mm. uh, there's that side of things, but, but it's not just about that. They obviously remain engaged in all of our work, not just our programs, which, which they are heavily involved in, but, we, you know, we were also there uh, to you know, the role that the foundation can play because we're not, you know, we're a leadership organisation. We're not, we're not a lobby group or an industry body or any of those sorts of things. So where we're best placed um, outside our work in, in new leadership development is to convene and facilitate uh, conversations around rural and regional and remote Australia, including with our alumni, in, in, all, in all sorts of areas. And, mm. and particularly where, you know, things might be tricky or, or difficult or, all those sorts of things where we can hold a space that allows people to have a quality in-depth conversation uh, and being able to work through complexity and difficulty, yeah. um, you know, to try and reach understanding. Yeah, and, and difficult conversations build trust, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, so, for example, I was uh, really interested to learn about the Milparinga Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership programs for, and there seems to be two of them, one for emerging and one for established leaders. It's, it's great to see that in the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation, you know, in terms of where we are today and where we need to get. Um, can you tell me a bit about how and when that came about and how those programs are going and, um, and, if, and if alumni from those Milparanga programs are perhaps joining the drought leaders or mentoring programs? Yeah, so it sure can. So, so firstly, there's, yes, yeah, so around 1,800 in our alumni now. And to, as of to, today around 18% of that 1,800 are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So, That's, wow. you know, so Milparanga program, yes. And we've always sought to, uh, sought to engage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on all of our programs anyway. 
And that has happened since the beginning, uh, since the first programs ran in the early 90s and mm. has escalated, as you've rightly pointed out, with the addition of the, the, the Milford Anchor Program. That program, one of the things I've come to know that is really important in our relationship between black and white Australia you know, and with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is, is really important to, to be walking alongside and, and doing things with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and not to them. And, and we certainly took that view in the development of the Milparanga program. So that was developed with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander alumni and was and continues to be run and managed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hmm. You know, I think all of those things are important. And uh, if it weren't for the likes of people like Scott Gorringe and then Michelle Deschong and, and a number of others, then that program would never have got off the ground. So we've tried to take that view from the start. And, you know, if we're going to, you know, our little part of making progress in that recognition uh, and relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, uh, we've got to keep taking the next steps. And, you know, for me, the next steps hopefully look like down the track in that program where it's not necessarily the, the foundation just running those, those programs, uh, but we could be doing that jointly with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations as well as ourselves. So that's, you know, these are small steps, but I think they're important steps. No, no, it's fantastic. And and so critical to be led by and for um, First Peoples, for First Peoples, and building great cultural safety and confidence to speak and uh, share the frameworks and requirements for, for cultural safety. Do those sort of elements, which I imagine are integral to those programs, do you have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people leading particular sessions in your lead uh, leadership programs? Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we do. Um, we, we, we will be doing and we'll be wanting to do more of that. But yes, mm-hmm. that does happen across across the other programs as well. So yes, that's part of our approach. Okay, let's talk about drought resilience and leadership. Uh, specifically, the Drought Resilience Leaders Development Program and the Drought Resilience Leaders Mentoring Program are initiatives funded by the Future Drought Fund that you and the ARLF deliver and I believe designed. The Future Drought Fund kicked off in late 2019 or thereabouts and makes strategic investments to help build drought resilience Um, and their investments include the creation of and support for eight drought resilience and adoption hubs around the country that aim to network and support researchers, farmers and rural communities to work together, share knowledge, practice in their regions and between hubs, which is um, really interesting to build resilience on a local, regional and national scale. Matt, before we dig into the detail of what the Drought Leaders and Mentors programs are all about, can you perhaps tell us about how you see them strategically sitting and fitting within the the future drought funds' aims and objectives? Look, I think think it's a really important part of of Future Drought Fund or or FDF Mm, mm. uh, activities. And look, I really really support the work that's gone on there from the Future Drought uh, Fund uh, Consultative Group and, and the government to, to recognise that whilst the innovation hubs and the work that's going on on farm and in individual businesses uh, is really important to, to drought and drought resilience, the recognition that droughts do not start and stop at the farm gate <laughs> is very important, yeah. um, you know, and, and we know that they impact a whole communities. So to be able to have some focus on, on how some of that funding can play a part in helping uh, those communities guided by them to build resilience, 
I think it, I think it's, it's really important. So I think that recognition that that's there is well received, mm. and I think it's very much needed. Yeah, yeah, that that's so interesting. I mean, my understanding is the future drought fund is very much not about emergency drought relief. It's all about building long term skills and capacity for resilience and perhaps even structural adjustment over time. Uh, and obviously, that's about people and community and um, hard discussions and uh, innovative things and alternative futures, possibly. Does does that sound about right to you? Yeah, yeah, look, it does sound right. And when we talk about structural adjustment, again, the important part here is this is an opportunity for a community-led rejuvenation, mm. community-led change, uh, and the community's deciding what's important to them in building resilience and not 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 have structural adjustment occur and happen to them if, if that makes sense so yeah um, I, I think it i think it is really important and um yeah i think this approach together with the other the other parts of fdf funding such as your innovation hubs uh working working in concert can lead us towards that outcome and i suppose for a lot of farmers you know they feel i've always done this and i love doing this and i can't bear to give it up but if they feel that they're part of a community of people who are having to change or adapt or or, or give something up that they're not so that they're not so isolated and and it's not as alienating to have to embrace change. Yeah, well, well I think that's right, and yeah. uh, we we know change occurs at, at, at multiple levels, and and just at times, uh, people who are feeling that way, uh, to be able to understand that firstly the impact is felt beyond them. So someone could be working in regional local government or in health or in an Aboriginal community, and they they're feeling it too. Well, that's the first step that that there's something shared. And, and then from there, okay, um, we, we can actually work collectively here. It's not all about me having to do it myself. And it's not my fault. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Matt, can you describe what the Drought Resilience Leaders Development Program is and when it got underway? Uh, yes. So this, the Drought Resilience, so there's two elements too, but the Drought Resilience uh, Leaders Program has been, been running uh, for, for about a year now. In terms of the entire program, That'll be running in, in 12 different regions around the country. And we've already been active in, in about seven of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those regions uh, go right across the country. So from the Golden Valley in Victoria, Central West Queensland, to WA, South Australia, uh, Northern New South Wales, down into Tasmania and up into the Northern Territory. So it really is uh, right, right across the country. And uh, that program is about as we talked about earlier on, that is about building a community or regional resilience in the face of change. And in this case, the driver being drought. And that is about bringing a diverse group of people from across those regions together through a single shared experience. That is uh, the leadership development program uh, that we're running in those regions. So that happens over eight days over, over a couple of different sessions. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think we we're talking about before those people Yes, they could be in farming and agriculture, but also in health, in regional development, in local government and Aboriginal communities uh, and beyond. So quite diverse in terms of where the people are, are coming from as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the program focuses on a few key areas. You and I talked earlier on about self-awareness and adaptive leadership or adaptation. So that's certainly part of that approach. We talk about uh, and explore personal and community resilience and, and how mm-hmm. those two things connect. Uh, we, we dive into, those groups will dive into problem solving, uh, how that happens at a, at a regional and community level, how to think creatively about, about the future 
and not just through a deficit mindset. In other words, thinking about everything that can go wrong, mm. changing that, changing that to something more, uh, more strength based. Mm. Yeah, and then dive, and obviously they dive into some of the the detail uh, about what's happening and within their regional context. So that could be around, uh, it could be around climate science, it could be a, around what's happening in their region and and uh, what impacts the region and regional development. Uh, it could it goes to the very personal level about their mental and physical well-being. Mm-hmm. So we explore all of those sorts of things. And also, really importantly, in the collective networked approach, scenario planning. So thinking about different scenarios for the future for our region uh, and how we prepare for different ones and what, it, what in fact, does our preferred future start to look like and things like uh, influence and, and network leadership, as we talked about before. Um, so th- there's some elements of... of the key topics. Yeah, some of the themes and, and topics. And, and, of course, all of this happens, you know, within the context of experiential learning. So, you know, I guess the easiest way to describe that is our programs are not classroom-based. You're not sitting in a classroom trying to digest a heap of content and spit that back out at somebody. It, it's creating experiences and opportunities for that group to, to come together uh, and through the prism of, of real-world experiences, in this case, uh, in the context of their region. So dro- dropping that group of people uh, into things that are happening and, and connections and, and with other groups in their region um, so that they're going through, when we're talking about scenarios, to make them as real-world as possible and not just some theoretical exercise on a whiteboard. Oh, no, that's fantastic. So the, I think, it, as you say, it runs over three sort of multi-day sessions, so it's face-to-face ideally, notwithstanding COVID. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it'll be a mixture of face-to-face and some virtual, but but the focus is on face-to-face. I was going to ask, has the design of the program sort of matched the participants? But it sounds like you've answered that and and that it has. Can you tell me roughly how many people have completed or are currently doing the drought leadership development program for the 12 regions? You know, what's the the sort of ballpark figure? By the time time we finish uh, the the 12 regions, yeah, there will be, you know, three to 400 people who've been through that particular program. And we, we were talking about the earlier about the Drought Resilience Mentoring Program and that, that seeks to connect. Yeah, we'll talk- yeah that, so that's, that's more people again. But because these are leadership development programs and they're not personal development programs, really importantly, what we anticipate is a ripple effect from those people. So that three to 400 people will have a ripple effect across many, many more people in their, in their regions because they're interacting with, networking with and supporting a bunch of other people in their region to act. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's a really key thing to pull out. That, that's fascinating. As you say, like, you know, the multipliers of, of these people going back in their communities and having amazing flow-on effects. Um, that's really exciting. And obviously linking up with mentors along the way too. Just, uh, just on the subject of the Drought Leaders Program, three to 400 people by the time 12 regions are complete with these fabulous ripple effects, we hope going, you know, rippling out. What does the mix or the profile of the community of participants who've been involved so far, what, what, what's, what does the profile look like? You've, you've alluded to that it could be people from health, from local government, farmers, industry groups, whatever, but what's the mix of ages and genders and backgrounds, you know, just to... Well, brush, well brush mixed, mixed would be the answer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. um, from what I've seen so far, and, and this, this, is, this is interesting, um, and I'm, I, I'm not about to... Uh, try and guess about what all the drivers are behind it. But mm. uh, there are, at this stage, 
um, noticeably more women than men that participated on uh, on on these programs. Yeah, there are a mixture of ages as we talked about uh, before. So we've had um, some young people in their you know in their early twenties through you know through through to people uh, you know in their sixties and seventies. So. It's not ageist, that's for sure. It's a, it's a mix, <laughs> uh, a, a mix, a mix of ages and genders. But I would make the comment that um, we've had more women than men go through the program so far. And, and how does that compare to your other programs? Well, it's interesting. I would say that that's that's happening more and more mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. all of our programs. Um, uh, there are one or two exceptions, but in the most part, more mm-hmm. more women appear to be sticking up their hand in terms of leadership development and the role they would like to play in terms of leadership uh, than men in recent years. Yeah, that's really interesting um, and good to hear. <laughs> Matt, you, you outlined the sort of there's a time commitment over three multi-day sessions, about eight and a half days, and you, you described the, the, the themes really, the themes and topics really, really well. Self-awareness, adaptive leadership, through to mental and physical well-being, climate science, scenario planning, and the, you know all the other things that people can read up on your website if they want to learn more. But they are really exciting, digging deep topics. It's it must be an amazing program, and you must have some pretty incredible people involved to facilitate those topics. Would you like to tell us about a few of them and the different sorts of skills and knowledge that some of the facilitators have brought to the program? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. So, uh, you know, we, we have our team and our staff at the foundation who are heavily involved and delivering on that program. And uh, we, we work with a, uh, a whole group of other people who are uh, facilitating programs uh, on the ground in different places around the country. So many of them are, as we talked about before, our alumni and, and can be associates of the foundation. Really importantly, they're they're regionally based. So, you know, for instance, uh, a program that's just been occurring in in far western New South Wales has been uh, facilitated by uh, Anika Molesworth, who is obviously uh, from uh, a remote property in that region. So, Mm, mm. you know, heavily involved, is from the region, understands the region. And, you know, I can think of uh, Tanya Lehman uh, when I was with her delivering a program in the Air Peninsula. Uh, and while she's not from the Air Peninsula, uh, she's she's from South Australia, from from that region, and understands a lot of the local context. So, yeah, so it's yes, it's our, our wonderful team and, and the staff we have at the foundation, and uh, we're working with other people. Really importantly, to keep focused on an understanding of and familiarity with um, the local context as well. Yeah, and that means they can be a part of that network on an ongoing basis with the people who've gone through the network, which is um, through Absolutely the program. Absolutely right. Yeah, That's right. And I, I also liked, uh, well, you know, I was quite intrigued by um, that as part of the program, that as you say, they do scenario planning and project, and, and, and I think they also work on a particular project. And so I wanted to ask you, has there been or can you sort of imagine or describe uh, a particular challenge or a local project that participants have been asked to focus upon and work on and tell us a story of one or two projects you've heard about? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so in that program, participants are eligible also to, and I don't know if you were going to get to this, but to... Oh, yes, about uh, the funding. About yeah, the funding. Uh, apply for a community extension grant of up to $4,000. So they can either do that individually or they can choose to try and, you know, bring those bring those amounts of funding together to run something um, that's more regional than it is individually focused. And 
from what I've seen, just about all of them have chosen to, to do that, which has been great, yeah, uh, because that's sort of network leadership in action, isn't it? Mm. Um, so some of the things that they've come up with there include things like uh, podcasts and digital media campaigns focused on mental health. That's that's one example of, yeah. uh, of something that's some of the ideas that they're exploring and some of the things they've been working on. Others have looked at things like, you know, field days and other things that are around uh, different technolo technological innovations and regenerative agricultural practices or whatever it happens to be. So they could be more practical and hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, other things that people have done have been around the community itself. So one around rebuilding community connections that have been lost um, because of things like droughts, floods, fires COVID. And, and, and COVID. <laughs> Workshops to share techniques for tackling complex community problems. So, you know, in other words, they've been through a, a process and a program which has helped them to do that. All right, how do we take this more broadly uh, across the community? Um, so, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a few different things that we've seen. And even, even um, I think of the group in Victoria and Shepparton, um, you know, looking at supporting a bunch of other people in that community uh, to be part of um, their end of harvest ball, which is an event designed to connect people uh, across the, the farming community with a focus on sharing mental health information. No, so, yeah, they're, they're very varied, but I'm, I'm pleased to say in all of those, uh, it's they're all about community connection. They're about they're about whole of region impact. Uh, and not just focus on one area. And Matt, um, COVID must, you know, have highlighted all those, you know, we all know every, wherever you live, just the challenges of rebuilding social connection and not, not being isolated. Um, have some of those particular challenges or local projects focused on local food systems and food hubs? A personal passion. Yeah, look, I, 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 to some extent they have. And certainly um, what I was talking about before, that that idea of, uh, of the field days, looking at different, uh, practices and technologies that can be employed, all of those will underpin those local food systems, um, yeah. no doubt at all. Although there was another one around community garden. And so that is very, very much as we, we just talked about before, focused on those focused on those local food systems. That group was in Queensland. I'm sure they were in Winton. Yeah, so they're working together, they're working together to establish a community garden. And from memory, that was a focus on indigenous plants. Um, so what they were seeking to do was to establish the garden at, like as a place for the community to connect. And now and then they were just working with other organisations in their region to explore uh, opportunities to expand that project. So the idea of community garden, uh, bringing in the, the concept of, of the role of Indigenous plants in, in relation to that. Um, and then can we have that as a, as a place for the community to connect? And we know Winton and, and areas around there um, the distance between neighbours is a couple hundred kilometres and all that sort of thing. So yeah. I think that community connection element is really important. Yeah, yeah, culturally safe, social connection, two-way conversations. Yes. Um, so, so it sounds like there's an incredible amount coming out of the program already. Can you give me a sense of, um, you know, how, how it's all going in terms of participant feedback so far? Are there particular areas that people are saying they especially love? And, and are there perhaps areas that people are saying, oh, could we have more of this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 does that mean a stupid question <laughs> no no it's not it's not a stupid question at all i, I think he, he, so here's a couple of bits uh, firstly um because we've been through COVID and everything else yeah exactly. people pe people <laughs> have absolutely loved 
any of the face-to-face -face elements. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, they, they've really enjoyed the shared experience and feeling better equipped um, to work their way through complexity and sometimes problems and conflict um, and still come out the other, other side of that, respecting each other and being able to make progress. Yeah. So I think, I think that's really important. I think we're in a cup on a couple of occasions where um, uh, we've had to do more virtual learning than we would have liked because of the situation in those states or jurisdictions at the time. Yeah, I, I think people have all understood, but it, but have, uh, have really felt that you know if they can if they can come together a little bit more uh, face to face that 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 would be better. Yeah, uh, and look some constructive feedback and criticism as well. We're always uh, open to them and, and welcome. And, and that's just ensuring that, um, you know, when it comes to regional context and content, um, you know, we're doing our best to make sure that what we're putting in front of people and so they're experiencing is, is sort of balanced and can involve very different views on, on, the, same, on the same topic or matter. So just to yeah. making sure, we just got to keep on top of that and make sure um, that, you know, that's as balanced as it can be. So, yeah, no, that's really interesting because actually, I think a lot I've heard this from various people, and I've, you know, think I've experienced it myself too. Um, all these, all this virtual connection and all these Zoom uh, meetings and so forth can work really well when you're all on the same page, or it's, you know, it's just people sharing and hearing and asking questions. But if you're really having to dig into a long and protracted hard conversation, it's very hard to do that by Zoom. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. It, mm. Look. You know, our, our experience, and I'm sure other people have used Zoom and Teams and everything a lot in the last couple of years, would be only too well aware. Mm, mm. You know, th this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a great place uh, to keep things ticking along and, and, mm. and to, to do things that, that are sort of action-focused. I think when it comes to being, to establish relationships and to have any meaningful conversation um, in any greater depth than that, it, it's not a great place to be doing yeah, that. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, we've got to make do mm. as everyone has but mm. um, you know that's where the face-to-face -face is really important. yeah but even just learning that's a value isn't it Matt um the drought resilience leaders development program uh that's the one we've just been talking about those participants can also apply to join the drought resilience mentoring program is that as well can't they they can feed they can. on into that yep. yep so that's exciting and are there any costs involved to participants to participate in either of the programs uh, no, oh, I mean, other than the cost of their, their own time, there, there aren't costs. So, um, no, that's it's fully funded um, by the Commonwealth. And I think people are entering into these into the programs with that in mind. And, you know, anyone in the regions we haven't been to and, and, uh, and we've, we've just been made aware that this program uh, will be extended over the next two years. So we'll be going. Oh, more fantastic. We'll yep. be going to more regions. Uh, can't say how many yet, but um, a lot more than 12 over the next I was going to ask you that question, so that's it's really good to hear. And um, as you've said already, so it doesn't cost anything to participate. It sounds like the program is going to be extended, which is great news. And there's also the, this, these other funding avenues that drought leaders, the drought leaders participants can apply for community extension grants of up to $4,000 as part of their program and activity so uh, real things to build on so let's talk now about the drought resilience leaders mentoring program which is a shorter one <laughs> and 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 we've already alluded to it it's one that the drought leaders can um, 
uh, take their expertise into as a mentor or mentee. Matt, what is the Drought Resilience Leaders Mentoring Program? What, what is it and what's, what's involved? It's a program um, that brings together farmers and people, you know, heavily involved or closely involved in, in the ag sector to, to, to connect with and, and, you know, seek and, and both seek and share uh, advice and, and support when it comes to the challenges uh, that they're facing or, or tackling, uh, you know, in terms of their, their own their own role or their own farm or their own business or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, there's no real limit on, on what, what might happen in those conversations. It's a, essentially a series of six conversations uh, over a number of months between a mentor and a mentee. Okay, so it's one-on-one, two people. It's one-on-one, two people. And what we do is, is play a role in seeking to connect a mentor with a mentee. And, um, you know, obviously there are ways in which uh, most, of the, most of the time that works just fine and they're off and running. Sometimes it doesn't quite click and there are opportunities for people to, to change that around. Uh, mm-hmm. But essentially to bring those two people together, it's mentoring and not coaching. And so uh, mm-hmm. mentoring is about the, uh, the mentor being able to share their own experiences with the mentee and where they could provide that support and advice uh, to, to that person as we talked about before in terms of the challenges and opportunities that they're facing. And, and that could be through the lens of their farm, whatever their agricultural practice might be, their own well-being. It could be to do with changes in, in climate and climate science. It could be a whole range of things um, that, that those two people will start to have a yarn about over those, over those six conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, what's the interest in it been like so far and how many people have taken it up? Yeah, look, it's been, it's been good and it's been high. And we had uh, over 200 mentors and mentees already matched mm-hmm. uh, before, before the latest round uh, went to air. And uh, we'll, get some, we'll get some more uh, clarity on what the numbers look like, but we expect there to be 300 or more of each in terms of mentors and mentees. Oh, so about 600 easily. Mm. All, yes. all, all up. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's right. And, and as you said, it's, you know, it is one-on-one, it's a personal relationship, it's mentoring, not coaching, um, and then the participants, mentors and mentees, uh, uh, can access the ARLF's um, alumni network and, and I believe under access resources and networks from it. What, what sort of, what sort of resource, resources are we talking about? Case studies or other contacts or what, what sort yeah, of resources? Well, yeah, well, that would be right. Um, mm. You know, I think that... Uh, well, well, that and everything through to what I've seen occur in the, the alumni network where, you know, I've literally seen, you know, people, you know, put a message out to the network that, look, I'm in the middle of this very sticky and complex situation. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just reaching out for help. And, you know, I've seen everything from, you know, words of advice and emails and chats and all of that thing, literally through to people getting on planes and flying to that region and giving them two or three days of their time. Uh, to help them walk through that problem. So it's really access to a network yeah. that, that will bring resources to you that you might be requiring. Well, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's what we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and what we'll also have uh, as part of that, that resource is a number of things uh, online that those people can access, you know, in their own time. You know, in other words, mm. okay, I'm about, to, I'm about to head into, well, you and I were talking about conversations before, so... I'm about to head into a pretty difficult conversation. I feel I'm okay on these fronts, but I, 
ideally like a bit more information on this, well, there'll be resources um, there available for them if they wanted to tap into that, to read into that, and then they can reach out to, to people or their, men, their, their mentor to take that a little bit further. So there's a whole range of resources that will be available. And, you know, as, as we we're talking about with regard to the Drought Leaders Program, this, this, the mentoring program, it is initially de de delivered virtually. It's accessible, it's free, it's really about peer support and mentoring. But from what you've just said, it might be delivered virtually in those six conversations, however people choose to do them, but then it's really resulting in face-to-face -face meetings and very hands-on practical person-to-person um, -person support as well by the sound of it. So that's, that's really um, powerful. Um, so Matt, with the um, mentoring program, it's available nationally and anyone can participate. I think there was a recent round that closed. Can you tell us about, for both programs, what the outlook or what the future of them is looking like? Obviously, it's a moving feast. But do you think if, if I wanted to get involved in, say, in the next six months or nine months or something, what do you think I'd be able to? Are people still able to get involved and how? Uh, yes. Um, so there will be an extension in some way, shape or form to both of those uh, initiatives. So even if you're not in one of the regions currently listed, um, there will be more regions announced uh, going over the next two years. And that, that will be similar in terms of there'll be an extension of the mentoring program over that period as well. Oh, so um, keep an eye on the website uh, as to, and we'll, we'll obviously, we'll get some information out there as well as soon as we have more clarity on that. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so for listeners, if you do want to learn more about these programs, head to the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation website and look for their programs and the Drought Leaders uh, Resilience Leadership Program is there and then these other websites and mentoring programs, webinars, sorry, and um, mentoring program information drops down with those and there'll be more coming by the sound of things. Matt, do you, should people, if they want to follow and you know stay involved with the program and what's developing over time, should they also subscribe to the Future Drought Fund newsletter or, or, or are you the best or is ARLF the key contact first point of contact? Oh, look, by, by all means, and I, yeah. I think that'd be well worth doing as well. Okay, okay. Matt, any other sort of uh, points or issues that we haven't covered that you might like to highlight? I was just thinking about that as you were wrapping up. I, yeah. I think we've, we've covered some pretty good ground there. Dear, I don't, I don't think there might be anything else, no. Oh, okay. Matt, as we sort of head towards a bit of a wrap-up, I thought I might just share some one of your quotes for, that I came across that I thought really sort of summarised the program and the spirit of it all really, really well. Um, you've said elsewhere that collaborating and advocating is very much people-based, and I think leadership rests heavily on people. That's why a leadership approach to resilience is really important. Resilience in rural Australia means not just bouncing back from drought, but bouncing forward. And you've also said that what drought resilience looks like for me is not just networks with the ability to support each other in hard times, but networks that can work together on a future that they'd like to see when not in drought. And that's exactly the time where most of Australia is in right now. So yes. very timely programs. <laughs> Matt, any final comments or thoughts on resilience and or leadership that you might like to make. We've covered it pretty well. The, the only other thing to say about it is just 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 remember at all times that, that leadership is a practice. It's a practice. It's it's not a it's not an individual, and uh, it's not something people are born with. And it's you know it it's a practice with others. That's what leadership is. Well, that's yeah, that's that's a great note to finish on. Thank you very much, Matt. A pleasure, Anthea. I've been speaking with Matt Linegar, CEO of the Australian Rural Leadership Foundation, about the Drought Resilience Leaders Development Program and the Drought Resilience Leaders Mentoring Program that he and the foundation that he's CEO of run. 
To learn more about the foundation, these and other leadership programs that they offer, head to rural-leaders.org.au. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Anthea. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.